word nerd, wordsmith, wordy, wordless. Oxford Dictionary says a word is a single distinct meaningful element of speech or writing, used with others or sometimes alone. We say each one matters. No extra words is literature, minimalist style. And we're getting you right to the story. Dust by Patty Somlow. The story started someplace in the southwest. It began as a small clump of dust loosened from the sole of a pair of sneakers made in China. The shoes belonged to the story's hero, who, when it was all over, became larger than life. He had, some said, died and been reincarnated, all in the blink of an eye. Dust from the man's shoe had traveled across the border between Mexico and the United States. A pale tan residue lifted into the wind on a day so hot and dry Nothing but a particle of dust would have even noticed. There were, one teller of the story was heard to relate, crickets spread across the desert, and they all began to sing. Night fell without a lessening of the heat. The man whose shoes pointed toward the sky lay where he had fallen, next to the border fence, on the Mexican side. Only the dust from his shoe had gotten across, though the man's goal had been to come to America and make his fortune. The dust glided through the air that first night. There were no clouds, which was good, because otherwise it might have rained and the dust would have turned to mud or been washed away, never to have been heard from again. If you were standing out in the desert, where lights are nowhere to be seen, a multitude of stars could have caused you to exhale slowly. A sliver of moon hung pensively off to the side. The dust did not want to go far that night. It lifted to a higher place, where the air current sailed it north. The little beige particle had heard about San Diego, and liked how the name rolled off a tongue. Plus, it was a name not unfamiliar to a morsel of dry soil from that side of the border, where saints were much more commonplace. A woman with long gray hair and the hint of a mustache above her lip told the next part of the story like this. The little piece of dust... You know, it was nothing, really, like dandruff or sand that blows in the door. It decided to come down from the sky and take a look around. This kernel of dirt from a tiny village in the Mexican mountains not far from Guatemala had never seen such highways or cars and so many lights. Well, you can just imagine what went through its tiny mind when it first saw San Diego. Meanwhile, the hero of our story, who had risked everything for a dream, lay in the hottest part of the desert, where no one but the coyote was apt to find him. At that moment, his soul was beginning to sneak away, climbing right out of his chest where sweat had gathered before the man collapsed. The next part of the story isn't quite so clear. Some say the dust allowed itself to fall, wanting to see where letting go would take it. Others claim the wind at the higher part of the sky took a break and smacked the dust onto the ground. A man in a bar on the south side of town, in between swigs of corona soured with lime, and after wiping the back of his hand across his mouth, said the dust had taken the form of a man as soon as it hit the ground. Meanwhile, a scorpion had marched its spindly black legs up onto the dead man's arm. The man didn't know, of course, what was happening, now that his soul had departed. One old man who snuck across the border too many years ago to count, and whose three gold-capped front teeth winked in the candlelight, heard that the dust slept in a downtown doorway all night. 
The little dust was very cold, he said, being so far north. The poor thing was not used to this weather. But what most people do not understand is that this dust, it was not stupid. Seeing the blue and green sleeping bags, lumps of stuffed nylon filling each of the spaces in front of doors, the dust understood how it might stay warm. It slipped underneath, at the corner of a bag, making sure not to slide further in where it would surely be crushed. At the same time, the dead man's soul hovered over the border between this side and that. Without the man and his dreams of a better life in America, the soul had a hard time deciding whether to keep moving forward or turn back around. Being an old soul, a bit worn at the toe, but carrying the wisdom of countless generations, this presence, which was like breath, water, and light all rolled into one, thought a quiet life on the porch overlooking the dead man's corn and bean fields in Teptapa would suit just fine. The soul had no use for gadgets made in China or a red Ford pickup truck like the man might have wanted, and the soul was not the least bit hungry at the moment. It had also been around enough time to understand what the dead man had not yet realized that the other side is often not better than the side where a man was born. It's at this part of the story where the song comes up. Musicians fight over who wrote their lyrics first, but credit is generally given to a band in Tijuana, the Border Boys as they are known, recorded a tune called Wetback Dust. As the song relates, neither the Border Patrol nor the drug dealers, and not even the President, could stop the dust from the shoes of millions of Mexicans from making its way over, under, and in between cracks in the fence, and settling down for a good long time in the United States. Welcome to No Extra Words, the Flash Fiction Podcast. My name is Chris Baker Dirsch. I'm your producer and editor. Once again, we've stumbled on this theme of place that seems to be driving us this year. I love how things come when you don't plan them. I hear a lot of people say that one of the ways to get inspired and to work on your goal setting is to give your life a theme, so to focus on a word for the year and to think about it as the new year starts. And, you know, I've heard people say things like peace or things like being satisfied if you're working on diets, you know, and and just to being satisfied in life. And this word, this concept of place seems to have found this podcast. And I did not plan it, but I think I've decided to embrace it and to go with it. And it continues on today's episode in so many ways. So again... This is Poetry Month, and we're going to share some poetry in just a moment. So I was looking when I put together this episode for stories that are prose that reads like poetry. And and these stories are such an evocative sense of where you are. And sometimes that's where you want to be, and sometimes it is not. And sometimes you're not sure. Um, And that's a very powerful concept, I think, in writing and literature. Anusha Gamire is our poet for Poets Corner, which is coming right up. She is a former No Extra Words contributor. She shared her flash fiction with us on episode 67, and she's back today wearing her poet's hat. 
and she is going to start by introducing herself and telling you why poetry, why she reads it, why she writes it, what it means to her, and then sharing some of her poetry with you before we close out. Such a different poet than Kelly Russell Agadon, who we featured last week, answering some similar questions. But one of the things that really hit me, and I was putting these segments together, was there was one question they both answered that I didn't ask. And I think it's a really important question that they that speaks to one of the reasons this is so important. And it was, why does poetry matter now? Um, and I think poetry, yes, and even the broader question of why does writing and storytelling matter now in this time and this place, maybe even more than ever before. And certainly that ties into Patty Somlo's story, which is how we started, about story and words and language being so much more than what they actually are and being able to take you beyond what they're the story they're telling to something much much deeper and that was very very powerful to me so once you hear Anusha speak and read her poems we're going to end with two pieces of short fiction that again are very very evocative of place just very grounding into where you are in a moment which I think is a an easy thing to think that you can do and very hard to actually accomplish so that's our episode today we're sticking around for two pieces of short fiction at the end we are closing out poetry month and i am closing it out actually with a blog feature which will be up on sunday april 30th at the blog noextrawords.wordpress.com it's there to close out poetry month and after hearing these poets talk about what poetry means to them and why they do it i wanted to share with you why it matters to me and why I have worked so hard through my career to really bring National Poetry Month to the forefront. And so that's going to be over on the blog so you don't have to hear me ramble. Um, and then we'll be back in May with new short fiction and writing spaces is coming back and all kinds of new grand adventures. But in the meantime, I hope you're having a wonderful Poetry Month. I hope you do pick up some poems and close out your Poetry Month in a great way. And now, without further ado, I bring you Anusha Kamira in Poets Corner. I was born in Kathmandu, Nepal, and came to the U.S. as a student. I often return home in poetry and prose. I left Nepal right after the royal family massacre and came to the U.S. in time to witness the 9-11 tragedy. In 2015, when I visited Nepal for the third time, the devastating series of earthquakes that lasted for almost a year started. I was there for the three big earthquakes, which I have often written about. Poetry has given me life ever since I could form words. I have found hope, companionship, solace, wisdom, peace, and understanding in the words of poets from centuries ago, contemporary poets. Those from countries far and near, and cultures similar to and different from mine. Even when not completely understood, poetry communicates something greater and more beautiful. For me, poetry is home no matter where I am and no matter when I am. Poetry is a shared sentiment 
beauty, and awareness. More now than ever, poetry is the electricity of life. I'm going to leave you with two poems that take me back to Nepal. The first one, to when I was a young girl being taken to the hospital in a taxi. I remember the voyeuristic interest of the neighbors and onlookers during a tragic situation, the bitter taste of being watched. The second one is my recollection of the April quakes in Kathmandu in 2015. Girl interrupted. Riding in the taxi, my head out one window and heels out another, I'm a ghost. Exiting my own womb, sealing the city's potholes with fire, I'm a dragon. Writhing inside four doors, hissing at the driver brother, I'm a snake. Rising from the tailpipe, slithering on every neighbor's window pane, I'm smoke. But their eyes still hover on side view mirrors every kilometer to the hospital. As their stretched necks forget the girl next door, but remember a body, I'm just a scene. The mosquito net. On Wednesday, my mother-in-law read in the Sunday paper about another grandmother, the woman. Could not tear off mosquito net with her bare hands, her knees on the edge of the daybed. When the earth cracked, the baby's wails broke his mother's fingers. She'd clawed at the net for fifty-nine seconds. The story was ink only because the grandfather was on the porch, his chin still higher than the ground. That night. We lined up our four pairs of sandals on the canvas tent's border. The hardened skin of our feet, almost seismic, measured tremors. We watched our children's closed eyes, swatted at the mosquitoes with our palms, like a rain of prayers. Fisherman of Dragon Tooth Beach, by Michael Paul Hogan. We anchored the rowboat and waded the last hundred yards ashore. The water was barely above our ankles, but we had to pick our way through a miniature forest of mangrove shoots five, ten, fifteen inches high, laid out like a tank trap between us and a narrow wedge of sand. High on the beach, four fishermen were stowing their gear. Their boat was drawn up almost to the tree line. There was a narrow road between the jungle and the bay. A fifth man came out of the jungle and joined them. They stopped what they were doing to watch us negotiate a path through the mangrove cones. The girl slipped in the thick gray mud, and I reached out instinctively to steady her. Feeling my hand on her bare shoulder, she jerked away, almost slipping again. We continued forward in silence. There were no birds, and the sea behind us was dead calm. The only sound was that of our feet squelching and glooping in the mud. 
The girl's legs were plastered blue-gray to the hem of her short sarong. The girl made the beach, and I followed her. It felt strange suddenly to be walking on sand. We walked together up the sharp incline of the beach. The girl waved, and one of the fishermen waved back. They had been rolling nets into tight cylindrical bales. One of these bales was already stowed in the back of a two-wheeled cart. The cart could be pulled by a donkey or pushed by a man. The others were folded, waiting to be rolled. The men were either bare-chested or had on unbuttoned, sun-bleached shirts. They all wore torn, mud-stained shorts. To their right, our left, was a raised pallet of bamboo poles, shaded by a palm-leaf awning. A boy sat there, swinging his legs and smoking a cigarette. I hadn't noticed him until then, but he smiled at the girl. Now that we were up close, I could see that all the men were smiling. We exchanged cheerful hellos, and the man who had waved shook our hands. He looked sixty, but was probably ten years less. His forehead bore the welts and discolorations of many hours and many storms at sea. At his hip, there was a sheathed machete with a wooden haft. He nodded and grinned and said something to the others. They all laughed and came over and shook our hands. They were all very impressed with the girl. I don't know if they had ever seen a very beautiful, very tall, blonde woman before. My God, I thought. They are all so happy. Here they are, stowing their gear for the thousandth time, and so obviously enjoying themselves. And would be, even if we hadn't come along. A thin breeze tugged at my polo shirt and rustled the banana leaves. The girl was talking to one of the other fishermen. He had two large suckerfish scars on his chest that put me in mind of the marks left by limpets on a rock. He was very handsome and had the dispassionate eyes of a man more used to looking at large expanses of sea. While he and the girl were talking, the older man went and fetched two green coconuts from a small pile by the roadside. He came back beside us and grinned. When he unsheathed the machete, I saw that it was straight-ended, like a cutlass, and almost black from salt air and much use. Having prepared the first coconut for drinking, he gave it to me, and I automatically passed it to the girl. She turned briefly and shook her head. He used the machete again, a sequence of swift, economical hacks, and offered the second coconut to the girl. She smiled very brightly, and then, looking down at this strange object in her hands, laughed, and all the fishermen laughed too, the cigarettes clamped between their teeth vibrating like tuning forks. I lit a cigarette of my own and looked back at where we had walked ashore. The watery mud was a flat gunmetal gray, cleated with those obscenely exposed mangrove shoots. In our boat, completely beached now that the tide had receded several yards further, I could quite distinctly see a man and a girl. The man said something, and the girl threw back her head and laughed. Her hair flashed in the shallow, angled, late-afternoon sunlight. Then she leaned forward and put her arms around the man. I turned away quickly, and when I looked back, they were no longer there. The girl, this girl, had put aside her coconut and was smoking one of the fishermen's cigarettes. Thrush by Norbert Kovacs I hear the thrush high in the trees at a distance. His song is like a clear, airy flute playing. 
I do not move as I listen to him sing. From the rest of the wood come other sounds. I hear the squirrel running and stopping and running again through the fallen leaves. A bee buzzes past my arm. In the trees, the robins sing their familiar three or four notes as they perch in the branches. The crow caws in the sky. I listen to the sounds announce one after another, sometimes together. They fill my mind. They seem of a large number, too many to know. Now the forest goes quiet, and I hear the thrush. His song comes without any answer from squirrel or robin or crow. He holds the air alone. I stand and listen to his fine, clear notes. Across the clearing are tall maples with leaves only at the canopy. I believe the thrush is singing in a pine fifteen yards behind them. I walk towards it. I mean to see the bird in the pine's upper branches. The thrush sings, grows quiet, and sings again. I step down the tall grass before me. I pass a fallen birch that raises a bone-like limb skyward. Beyond the clearing I stalk over lime-green moss by the maple roots. I do not slow for it. Up ahead the thrush has gone silent. I arrive at the pine and think to look above. Before I can, I hear the thrush sing a short two notes. These come not from the pine, but the dense shaded wood beyond it. I realize my thrush has flown, and that perhaps he never had been in the pine at all. I scan the dense woods and cannot guess where he might be in them. I wait and wait, but no bird sings. I take it as a message. From thrush or wood, I do not know. I bow my head humbly beside the pine. Thanks for listening to the No Extra Words podcast. For more information on today's stories and contributors, or to learn how to submit your own work, please visit us at noextrawords.wordpress.com. The best support you can give the show is to recommend us to your family and friends. See you next time.